millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking new ministers, new UCAS numbers, cheating and academic governance. It's all coming up. Arguably, there was a time when we needed to test we needed to test someone's ability to regurgitate knowledge because we didn't live in a hyper-connected world and we did need to memorise information. Um, but I think we can probably afford to be more output focused, right? I mean, I saw some commentary. Um, I mean, well, I, what I think is sort of pearl clutching, really, about remote online exams and the inability to monitor how students were completing them. And like Mark, you know, I. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy, and analysis. I'm Walkie's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to dive into the HE policy waters this week in what is unbelievably the final episode of this season and this academic year, three fabulous guests as always. Just outside Chepstow, it's Jenny Shaw, Higher Education External Engagement Director at Unite Students. Jenny, your highlight of the week and the academic year. Oh, gosh. Um, so they're both research related. So this year, I've uh, just got the data set back from our applicant survey and really just been getting under the skin of this new cohort that's coming in. So that's been really exciting. Highlight of the year has to be the Living Black at University research that we launched. And that's because how much it's given people a voice. So black students and black staff as well. Um, that, that's been absolutely my highlight of the year. That's a great, great piece of work. I, I commend listeners. Um, on the border of Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire, it's, it's Ash Cardia, Director of Planning, Legal and Governance Services at the University of Leicester. Ash, your highlight of the week and year, please. Uh, Hi, Mark. Thank you. Uh, So I'd say graduations are starting this week at the university, and it's a wonderful reminder for me as to why I love the transformative nature of our sector. Uh, It looks like it's going to be a hot week for those who are graduating, so please stay hydrated, listeners. Uh, Personal highlight for me is that it's sports day in uh, my children's school, and I'm really not looking forward to the parents' race at the end. And then I think in terms of the highlight of the year, I'm glad we're starting to finally kind of transition out of COVID. I know we're still a long way left yet, but um, that's one. And then the the other is a shameless plug for the university and it was that I think it's been the year of the ref and uh, we've gone up 23 places at the University of Leicester to rank 30th overall so it's given a real feel-good factor to all at the university. Great, great. And in Exeter it's Sunday Blake, Wonky's Associate Editor. Sunday, your highlight of the week and the year if you please. So my highlight of the week is being added to the community WhatsApp group which is really exciting because because when you're a graduate and you stay in a university city that all your friends move out of you kind of don't really know people and it takes a while to like integrate into like the community so being added to that I feel like I've kind of like become like a local if that makes sense Um, rather than uh, a graduate Um, and my highlight of the year at risk of sounding like a sycophant and having some anonymous uh, Twitter account call me a bootlicker is um, coming to work for Wonky obviously um, which has just been the best thing I've ever done and have you know the whole year there's not been one dull moment which is incredible to say uh, well done for reading that that script out so perfectly Sunday. That's, that's I haven't got a script. Yeah, got, yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. 
Uh, now, we start the week uh, with politics, and they say a week is a long time in, in, in politics. Um, so it has been the last one, and so it will be the, the next one, probably. Um, Ash, talk, talk us through what on earth is going on. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a, a new HE minister, and we've got the race for being the leader of the Conservative Party and potentially the new next Prime Minister. Uh, so that new Minister for Skills Further and Higher Education at the Department of Education is Andrea Jenkins. And so let's hope we don't get any obscene gestures towards the sector like the crowd got from Andrea last week outside of Downing Street. Uh, David uh, Kernahan has provided some like really fascinating insight into the new minister on the wonky website. So I just literally lifted all the stuff that I could find from there. Uh, In terms of the Tory leadership race, uh, we'll know more in the coming days, obviously, uh, as to who the final two candidates will be. And it's going to be a month, I'm sure, of intense canvassing. Uh, From a kind of a non-partisan perspective, it's great to see a diverse group of candidates vying to be the next leader uh, and the next Prime Minister. Great. So, Jenny, what jumped out at you at um, the profile of Andrea Jenkins? Well, I I was very struck by DK's uh, analysis of her previous amateur music career. Um, As you know, I love an amateur musician. um, And I hope that means that she's going to protect creative arts courses. Well, she was. She did have a hit single in in Pakistan in 2008. Um, uh, I believe we've got a clip. Um, so this, this is possibly a first a HE minister with a um, somewhat of a of a musical career uh, backdrop. I guess it it definitely makes the the choices we play, you know, the the, the music we pipe in at the start of wonky conferences. That's kind of taken care of for now, I think. Um, but the, the, on a serious on a serious point, I mean, she is a very hardline Brexiteer, um, and she's also a uh, kind of extreme Johnson loyalist. Um, an odd choice for an HE minister then Sunday, right? Well, I actually uh, don't think it's the worst thing in the world uh, to have a universities minister who went to university via a non-traditional route and as a mature student, um, particularly as the last two universities ministers have had a tendency to treat campuses like sort of boarding schools or students as school leavers. So, um, yeah, I, I, I will admit there are some strange qualities to her <laughs> as an individual but um i'm interested to see where she comes with that non-traditional perspective yeah so this was said i mean there's something similar was said about gavin williamson who, who went to usc bradford um because previously we you know i mean as as politics is so dominated by oxbridge uh uh oxbridge graduates um, it, it is always stand out when um you get a minister who didn't take that route so that that, that is interesting hopefully that gives her as you say kind of a more breadth of understanding um, of 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 different sorts of higher education there is, but I mean, it's going to be a difficult summer, right? Actually, we've got we've got A level results, we've got all sorts on the agenda. Um, I mean, it's it's more than just a caretaker job. I mean, she's going to have to get properly stuck in, right? Yeah, I think so. But what will be interesting will be, you know, we should have a sweepstake on this, Mark, really, as to how long uh, either she'll be in post uh, once the new minister, prime minister is announced. And, you know, maybe you should do a sweepstake on Wonky as to how, how long the next minister will be in post, given how, how things have been so turbulent recently. Um, there is a lot on, on the agenda. Uh, I know that was covered in, in last week's podcast as well. But um, I think that we've got, a, we've got a number of things that we just do need to consider. I also don't think she'll want to rock the boat too much, but that's just my naive perspective. Uh, there is a hell of a lot going on with regards to the lifelong learning entitlement and obviously the freedom of speech bill that's going to be coming through um 
part of me actually thinks how much damage can be done uh, in the next few weeks or months. Yeah, so the government has said that they're not going to change any policy they're going to kind of carry on with what's what what they're already doing and what's in train. So as you said, that means free speech bill. That means consultations on lifelong loan entitlement, uh, minimum eligibility requirements, um, uh, student number controls. Um, all of that is probably going to carry over and and kind of t- tick over. Um, I guess the question is, you know, I mean, as Chris Husband said said this week, you're somewhere. Somewhere out there in the sector, you know, a, a vice chancellor's office is getting a call about a, a visit because, you know, Andrew Jenkins will want to kind of get on the road and, you know, have some pictures in, in front of a university. I guess the, you know, the question is, you know, who will, will get her attention? Who will get, um, who will be uh, influential with her? Um, and, and whether she keeps, um, Ian Mansfield as a special advisor, um, is also kind of pretty key because he's got lots of relationships in the sector. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch in the next, next few weeks, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's definitely going to be an interesting one. And I think, um, one of the things I've always thought about ministers and new ministers coming in, uh, is, and, and you'll know more about this, Mark, than in, in your kind of previous experiences. Surely we should be utilising some of the experience of previous ministers in terms of mentoring and supporting new ministers that are coming into a sector. We've had some, you know, very, very interesting characters responsible uh, for our sector in the past. I'm sure, you know, within their same same party. So I'm sure they could call upon their experience. But how realistic is that? Is that something that could happen? Mm-hmm. Good question. And so, we're, we're, you know, we've got loads of hustings going on for leader of the, of the Conservative Party. Um we're heading towards uh final two candidates and there's going to be an awful lot of these things happening over the summer if you were going to go along to one of those uh maybe you will um what would be the question you would ask those candidates so i i'd certainly i feel quite passionate about about this and that's uh free school meals for for for, for all school children or children of a, a, a school age uh from all the way through from primary secondary and then wherever the special schools are as well etc just to make sure that every child is fed uh i i, I did a back of the envelope calculation as to how many billions it might cost uh and it would cost about quite a lot but I think given everything that we've got going on, one of the questions I would ask is, you know, would you be willing to consider that? Um, yes, the question would be, how would we pay for it? But, um, you know, if that's through increased taxes, et cetera. But that's certainly something that I'd want to have uh, considered. You know what? I'm just going to pile on that point. I think I think there's nothing more fundamental than that. And and I think then, you know, we might want to, to extend that and talk about, okay, how how are you going to address the dwindling of the the value of the student maintenance package uh, in a a high inflation economy and how you're going to address food poverty among students as well. Sunday what would be your questions to the candidates? I I was also going to say cost of living issue but uh, not just for students but uh, just for the the general population but uh, to throw in something else I, I do one of the things that I've seen come out of a lot of the Tory leadership debate which is exhausting because it's been going on for quite a few years now in, in in education but it's you know this 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 idea of the concept sorry this idea of the culture wars right and you've seen like the attacks on advance he the attacks on trans rights and I d- the thing is i do think that young people can be slightly intolerant they can run away with certain ideologies when they're at university because that's part of going and experimenting on who you are and your beliefs but um I, what I want to see is uh, a candidate who's not coming out 
swinging and fighting in the culture wars, but someone who's actually going to end it, right? I mean, it's called a war, right? We want someone who needs to end (laughs) a war. And I think one of the things I'm not seeing in the candidates is someone who can approach this issue, who's calm, level-headed, and can actually like calm down a very divisive tension that is, you know, that the sector's bearing the brunt of at the minute. So, um, yeah, obviously, I would put cost of living above that. <laughs> but as as everyone else has said, things around cost of living, I, I would like to see someone actually come out and say, this is an issue going on at the minute. And this is how I'm going to end it rather than just like fan the, fan the flames, which I think a lot of people are doing, or a lot of the candidates are doing. And just some just some sense of where they see universities like in the in the world, you know, uh, I mean, it's been it's been really popular for for uh, conservative ministers to talk about there being you know, too many students, essentially, and emphasizing other routes. But it'd be I think I think they do they are going to have to be pressed on, um, you know, what they want from the higher education system, how big it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and whether, you know, they're happy to continue squeezing it as they are and, um, in, in, in funding. I think that is, I think it'd be a shame if it doesn't come up in us things. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pop along as well to ask <laughs> a question. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, Alex Blower here, Access and Participation Manager for Arch University Bournemouth. This week I've been writing for Wonky on the subjects of educational attainment and higher education progression for working class boys. The blog takes a look at discussions that have taken place across the higher education sector over the last few years and asks the question why after so much discussion there is so little action taking place to address the issue. It presents recent developments in access and participation plan strategy from the OFS as an opportunity to make meaningful impact for working class boys and the blog constitutes a call to action collectively for the higher education sector to mobilise behind the issue and address it. Now we're getting many more numbers out of this year's UCAS application cycle. Jenny, walk us through them. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So as you say, UCAS have dropped their data on the 30th of June deadline applicants in the current application cycle. Um, As a veteran of many a widening participation initiative, it's a bit of a dream come true for me because we've got record numbers of applicants this year from those most deprived areas, the polar quintile one areas, and application gaps have narrowed between the most advantaged and the most disadvantaged areas. But it's quite bittersweet at the same time because there is going to be a fierce competition for actual places. So we don't have student number caps. That's fortunately been ruled out for now. But there is that capped unit of resource that's dwindling in real terms and it means there's less incentive of course for institutions to expand their UK student numbers so in other words what we're seeing at the applicant stage might not translate into a more equitable participation rate and then we've got the cost of living crisis we've talked about that already but um, for students and especially those without parents who can help them out financially um, they're going to be really vulnerable so the total student finance package is not at all keeping up with inflation and nor is it likely to do in the near future unless something changes. So in summary, although we're moving towards equality of opportunity when it comes to uh, participation, um, we're still a long way from equality of outcomes. Yeah, yeah. It it feels like a real tragedy to me. I mean, all this work for so many years in 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 widening participation can get people to university um and we're heading to a point where universities essentially can't afford to to teach them um and i mean this is and this is going to be a political problem this summer we've been predicting this on one key for a while i mean outside of just this year i mean application application rates have been rising demand 
continues to increase and the overall amount of 18 year olds continue to rise and 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 this year more than ever we're starting to see really noticeable moves and in universities having to prioritize or deciding to prioritize international students rather than um home students when it comes to uh just trying to make kind of make make the numbers add up and uh, i just feel like we're heading towards this massive massive crunch point it may not come this year but um you know that 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 gulf between the amount of people who want to go and the amount of spaces that there are um it just feels like i mean all that work to get to get to this point uh is going going up in smoke sorry more of a more of a comment than a question someone else <laughs> put me out to put up put, put about my misery what what else is what what, what what's the good in all this please correct me if i'm wrong but like I'm pretty sure that we had the exact same headline for this back in January that, you know, record number of students are applying to universities. So it, you know, it shouldn't really come as, as, as a surprise. I think what disappointed me this morning, um, when I, uh, I, I was sort of going through the, the different, uh, press releases from, you know, UK and office students around this and, and there was just, um, pure, purely celebratory. Uh, around this and and I really feel that it's it's a kind of um it's like a veneer you know it's like a sort of like hey isn't this great that these students are you know this record number of disadvantaged students going to university um uh, yeah like I completely agree with with Jenny I'm not sure it is and 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 the other thing that that saw me that I saw that was I was a little concerned about um in the standard I think it was yesterday uh was there was an article on um uh, Kemi Badenoch, who said that uh, she wanted to cut student uh, grants and subsidiaries, um, I can't remember. What, I think she, <laughs> I think she said that that was in response to the economic crisis, which which made me laugh a little bit because I don't think that those things are particularly well funded as they are. But um, you know, especially not uh, <laughs> not in any way that's going to solve any kind of economic crisis, at least at least by cutting them. But um, yeah, it did. It did. It did worry me that uh, that that's the those are the conversations that are happening with prime ministerial candidates at the time that record number of disadvantaged students are coming to universities. It's um, it, yeah, it's it's it's. But not... hold on, they're not coming. It's applications. It's sorry, not it's not sorry. Yeah, yeah so, no, so, Ash, applied. Ash, this, yeah, yeah. So Ash, this, I mean, this is good news, but in a vacuum, right? So it's good news that the the the, the work to get disadvantaged students into university or to apply to university is is working. Um, and it's good news that demand for higher education is strong because that's, that's good news for the sector overall. It strengthens the sector's position when it comes to negotiating with the treasury and, and all sorts of things, right? But it's bad news because, um, not all the students are going to get to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I think that in terms of the demand, um, I think there is still enough availability to meet that demand. Um, Let's see how things go in terms of the different types of provisional offerings that the, the kind of the, the, the political landscape is trying to offer with regards to T levels, apprenticeships, etc. Um, but but one of the fundamental questions I think we need to, to look at here is: Are we prepared to support this new cohort of students coming in who have uh, experienced things that none of us have experienced that during their school uh, and um, further education uh, careers um, to date? So, for example, they're going to they're going to be requiring. A significant amount of mental health and well-being support uh, in terms of the types of assessments that they'll be going through at university the types of critical thinking for example uh, have we have we as a sector looked inwards and, and thought are we doing the best that we can to support these students uh, and I'm not suggesting we haven't but I think we do need to ask that question I think we do need to to make sure that we are setting these students up for success not failure yeah so we we've 
just got the data back, as I said, for our applicant survey. It's quite comprehensive. We've got a lot of detail on their uh, mental health and their well-being. We've got a lot of detail about how they feel about their their um, learning, how they feel about social issues and so on. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that uh, hopefully next week. Uh, I think it will give us a, a real deep dive into what this current, uh, this incoming cohort is is going to want and need. And it is quite different. Just a little spoiler there. Great. Well, we, we look forward to seeing that very much. Um, you can find all the UCAS data and anything else you need to know about what's going on um, in links in the show notes. Now, our colleague from Wonky, James Coe, is here to tell us what's going on with research allocations and everything else. Hi, it's James here, Associate Editor for Research and Innovation. It has been another busy couple of weeks on the science policy front. Of course, the government has fallen as the Conservative leadership election rumbles on. There is a gap at the heart of science policy with the departure of George Freeman. In a set of unusual tweets, George Freeman was saying he would come back to his role, and then he confirmed that in fact his offer had been declined. In the meantime, it seems that Kwesi Kwarteng is going to oversee that portfolio, but of course that leaves a day-to-day gap at the heart of this policy. This is unhelpful as issues like Horizon Association remain on a knife edge, and at the moment, Association looks more unlikely. However, amidst all of this uncertainty, Research England yesterday released their 2022 to 2025 budgets. And it has a lot of good news in it for the sector. QR funding is up, there is additional funding for knowledge exchange, and there are more incentives around business collaboration. The funding formula is similar to previous years, with the links between three-star and four-star research maintained. Funding is following proportionately to disciplines, as it has previously, and there is even a specific mention of the value that arts and humanities bring to our shared cultural lives. No doubt a nod to some of the speculation that actually these things are somehow less valuable or should be defunded, as you will hear from lots of misinformed media commentators. At a time where everything may feel a bit loose, where there is a sense that science policy can be forgotten about amidst the wider chaos of government, a medium-term funding settlement as increased quantum of funding to it brings a sense of certainty where the sector needs it most and it can get on with the things which we are best at pushing the boundaries of human knowledge in order to improve the lives of all of those we encounter you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, there's some interesting new polling out about uh, students cheating in exams. Sunday, walk us through it, please. 
Um, okay, so this is actually a survey which was commissioned by the law group um, Alpha Academic Appeals, <laughs> which I love the name of. Um, and it found that 16% of students uh, say that they have cheated in online exams this academic year. Um, but only only a very small minority of those who uh, cheated, who cheated got caught. Um, 50% uh, of respondents knew someone else who had cheated and 8 in 10 believed that it was easier to cheat in online exams and exam halls. Um, so obviously, you know, with, with this, there's the typical arguments that can be made when we talk about cheating. So, um, you know, our, like conversations around student academic uh, confidence and imposter syndrome and um, are institutions adequately preparing students for exams in a way that uh, boosts their morale and their confidence, they feel they don't have to cheat, you know, all those conversations. Um, but I, I actually don't think that this is so much of a, a why cheat conversation, uh, a, a more conversation that we need to look at the reality of the world that we live in and whether the uh, style of assessment used still reflects that. Um, because obviously, you know, we're being sort of bombarded by ministerial directives that universities must prepare uh, students for the world of work or give them real skills for work, right? Um, and it just made me think about, you know, what is the reality of the world of work? Because what is constituted in this uh, survey as cheating is very much how I work on a daily basis. <laughs> um, so when you look at the qualitative input, uh, when they're asking students how they cheated, they said that they used online resources, they discussed questions with a friend, uh, or they completed an assignment collaboratively. Now, myself and uh, thousands of other degree holding workers in the country uh, and the devolved nations, you know, we, we sit at our desks with an incomprehensible amount of information and uh, secondary knowledge at our fingertips surrounded by colleagues um well virtually or physically who can collaborate and assist with us and uh you know like when I'm writing an article for the site I'm in this sort of position I, I don't sort of sit and think oh what's the specific clause in the education act I'll, I'll look them up or um maybe ask Jim because he'll know um but I mean you know I've sat in a GP's office before and they've googled symptoms or they've nipped out and asked a colleague for advice and I, I just think that we've moved past this idea of students having to consume and regurgitate knowledge as an for an exam because one it's incredibly tedious it doesn't test critical capacity and arguably there was a time when we needed to test we needed to test someone's ability to regurgitate knowledge because we didn't live in a hyper-connected world and we did need to memorize information um, but I think we can probably afford to be more outputs focused, right? I mean, I saw some commentary. Um, I mean, well, I, what I think was sort of pearl clutching, really, about remote online exams and the inability to monitor how students were completing them. And well, like Mark, you know, I I work remotely, and you don't know what I'm doing for eight hours a day, but you're happy. Well, I hope you're happy. <laughs> that might be a conversation for our one-to-ones. But, yeah. <laughs> but I just, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think it's right to be discussing how we prevent students from working in ways that they're going to be working in for the rest of their lives because of mm. some sort of draconian marriage to exams. What we should be discussing is how do we adequately assess students as being ready for the workplace? And that's not by assessing them in conditions that are the exact polar opposite of those workplaces. Yeah, I look. I like this angle. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good. That's a good angle, Sally. We're questioning. We're questioning really what we mean by cheating here. So, mm. I mean, and I, I, I definitely get everything you're saying. But there is a gulf between, as you say, using digital tools to collaborate and and the sort of things that you would expect, and kind of outright plagiarism, which is also mm -hmm. not what you're saying is is kind of what you would do 
that wonky. I mean, I think no. we, we would we would have noticed by now. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think it's the it's the survey. It's a very the problem with the survey is it's a very broad definition of cheating. If it's yeah. just plagiarism, I would accept it. But you know the I, the fact that it's saying speaking to another fr- to a friend, and I just think, well, I'm not I'm not sure that that counts as academic misconduct anymore mm-hmm. because you know it, that's what you would do if you if you're going into the workplace. Mm. Okay, well, Jenny, maybe help us out here. So. Putting aside what is and what isn't academic misconduct, why do students feel like in their minds they have to cheat? I think there's an intense pressure. And, on in such large numbers, in such large numbers, yeah. I should say, sorry. Yeah. Well, they, I, they've got so much invested in it, I think, financially compared to previous generations. Uh, I mean, I'm saying that as someone who went to university on a full grant and with no fees. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think that puts a huge amount of pressure on. Um so it, it's unsurprising they they want to do the, the very best they can. But absolutely agree with Sunday. The first thing I thought when I I read this was, well, you know, th- this is just uh, this definition of cheating comes from an era when a small fraction of the population went to university and they were doing so to go on to a, an academic career. And now that we are seeing and the government is seeing um, university as a preparation for the world of work and the knowledge economy, then it, it's it, it doesn't. That definition of cheating is is counter to really what we're demanding of graduates uh, as they enter the workforce. We we want them to, as Sunday said, we want them to uh, use all the, the vast knowledge uh, at their mm-hmm. at their disposal. We want them to to talk to people, be collaborative, and to produce things at the end mm-hmm. of that. And that's that's the behaviour that they appear to be showing uh, under this definition of cheating. Yeah, yeah. How how would, how do you handle this, uh, Ash, uh, Lester? So I, I'd say immediately, personal academic tutoring plays a significant role uh, in trying to cut this off at, at, from the start. And I, I'm not. I agree with everything that Sunday said and Jenny said. But I think in terms of the the ones who are plagiarising and, and just just you know actively cheating in, in in the worst possible sense, we need to try and get to the bottom of what the reasons are for this. Is the content too difficult? Uh, is it just sheer laziness? Is what is it that's causing the students to go down this route because of the, the sheer volumes involved in term, in particular with regards to the survey response? And I think that that sorry. So coming back, personal academic tutoring system is is, is for me one of the key drivers to understand the students. How often are they meeting with their with their academic uh, representatives? other tutors for example course leaders module leaders etc uh, we have open door policies we have office hours etc i appreciate during covid it's it's been probably virtual and, and it's not been ideal but we need to get to a stage where students are able to to, to communicate honestly with with aspects of all aspects of the university whether that's through professional services and student support functions or whether that's through the academic teams i think there's a long way to go at leicester i think we've got a good initiative with regards to personal academic tutors um, system sorry uh, with regards to kind of early warning signs of engagement or lack of engagement uh, in terms of some attendance monitoring etc and then you then look at well what interventions are we putting in place or are we then at my earlier point are we setting them up for for failure if we're mm. not helping and supporting them I really like that you've made the distinct that that really clear distinction between that sort of intentional plagiarism and and uh, versus teamwork. I think that's a, that was probably missing uh, in my introduction to this. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I really like that you made that point. I think the um, one one of the things that I think is well because we've been I've been working on this project to do with like a belonging and inclusion, um, and there's a, a lot of the evidence coming out of that research project. Um, 
is indicating that all the things you said, you know, so really good, strong relationships with academic staff, open door policies, um, you know, frequent meetings of academic tutors, um, those lead to students feeling that they are emboldened and part of an academic learning community. And when they feel part of the academic learning community, they feel that they're um, that they can contribute to that sort of like the, the institutional knowledge on a, on, a, on a topic within their department um, and it encourages them and um, raises their or lowers imposter syndrome um, and raises their academic confidence in exams. So um, yeah, just really great to hear that, <laughs> that you're doing that because I think that a student who feels part of a learning community is less likely to go to a third party uh, and, you know, you there are a lot of things popping up at the minute, um, sort of services that, you know, extortionally expensive services uh, offering to, to complete exams and assignments for students. Um, but, yeah, when a student is embedded in their learning community through the things that through the, the outreach and services that you're talking about, um, it, the evidence coming from the work that Wonky and Pearson are doing is showing that they're a lot less likely to cheat because of their raised academic confidence. So, yeah, that's great to hear. And finally this week, Heppy is out with a new report all about uh, academic governance in universities and what governing bodies need to be doing better. Um, talk us through it, will you, Ash? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I really enjoyed reading the Heppy policy note. Uh, it's kind of exploring what governing bodies can do in anticipation of the increased regulation and scrutiny surrounding academic standards, quality and student attainment. Um, putting aside the kind of the questions of autonomy, if I may, that's, that's detailed in the report and just going straight to the conclusions. Uh, so, so some of the conclusions here are that, you know, they'd look to implement or see some of the following, which is degree outcomes statement. So that kind of an annual consideration of student attainment, what's happened, what's changed and why has it changed? And then an annual quality report to the governing body uh, that, that focuses on kind of key performance indicators around NSS, around surveys, whether that's postgraduate, could be internal surveys as well. Uh, summary of key points from external examiners, department action plans, and then specific areas of kind of risk and where they've got some some concerns, whether that's either through partnerships, t arrangements, etc. Um, obviously, you've got a link to the TEF, you've got a, a link to the kind of the, the regulatory side of things with regards to the conditions, uh, B3 in particular. Uh, and, and, you know, I've kind of read out all the conclusions there, apologies. And I think um, they, they all seem sensible to me. Um, and I suspect that some, if not all, may already be uh, undertaken at a lot of institutions, i.e. I think the governing body will be aware of a lot of these aspects. Just speaking from my experience alone at the institutions I've worked at, I feel confident that these areas were considered even as far back as six years ago, actually, in some, in some of the institutions I worked at and, and continue to be so. Um, I just wanted to add one one kind of point around governance, though, and that is uh, just a gentle reminder that, that most of the governing body lay members aren't paid to carry out their roles, and, and we ask a lot of them. And so if there's going to be any further increases on their time, um, are we looking at a change in position where they'll have to be remunerated and therefore a further cost to the sector? So I'm going to leave it there. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, one of the interesting things that, that has clearly happened is you know, more responsibility for for governors and governing bodies um, over the last few years, with, a, with a, as as regulation has shifted in in that direction. Um, and I mean, I recognise the you know as a governor of a university myself, I, I recognise that kind of tension between the kind of academic governance and the and and the rest. Um, and and clearly, we're heading to a point where. It's, it's increasingly hard to separate those two things out. I wonder if that means we need a much bigger think about, about these structures. You know, you've got, 
you know, should 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 most universities have a governing kind of council and academic governors, a- academic governance structure separately? You know, never the, the twain shall meet, or you know, or, or do, do we need to think about these these questions much more in the round? Because you know, it's a kind of unavoidable tension now, isn't it, Jenny? I think this is a really interesting point. And when when I was looking at this, I was reflecting that, that very very few people outside of the sector and and potentially some people within the sector are not that clear that there is this distinction between governance uh, of academic matters and and sort of general governance uh, something that i know nick hillman director of hepi is is fond of saying is universities are not just big schools um, they are places where knowledge is created as well as taught um, i think there there has been a tendency for parts of government to treat universities as if they are sort of big schools and particularly the whole sort of boots on the ground rhetoric suggests you know it's that that these are um entities where that these are really sort of simplistic entities Mm. for uh conveying information uh Mm. to young people whereas they're not and and i think academic leadership it does go it does go beyond um it does go beyond course quality and and academic quality but i i think that's a, a really important part of it but um it is it time to merge the two i i think that feels uncomfortable mm. to me and i think it will feel uncomfortable for the sector i think it probably blurs some lines that don't yet need to be blurred mm. yeah i mean the with senates and councils that there is a, a clear distinction between the two like i i understand what you're saying about like how they're they're becoming increasingly more like um like there's, there's there's crossovers but so in senate you know there are staff elected staff members from department heads across to hospitality staff and cleaners right so there it, it's a really important forum uh where these uh you can get this sort of cross institutional voice heard i think that going back to ash's point on um remuneration of council members i think that would be something that would concern me a lot and the point is that you know this is meant to be an independent body it's not meant to be uh, in recipient of payment from the institution that um it's governing at all uh one thing i am quite happy about with the guests today is i had a question about this and i think i've got i've got um good people to ask and and that is um the report seemed to suggest that uh, if if, gov- if governing bodies enhance their understanding of academic life and outwardly demonstrate strong governance in this area, I, I got the impression that the report was suggesting that this would um, allow institutions to retain some autonomy uh, in the face of uh, well, what Jenny was just describing, which you know might be slightly heavy-handed. Uh, sort of <laughs> heavy-handed interventions from the government and I wanted to ask you know Mark or Ash or, or Jenny like if, if you think that that will happen because as Ash said you know this is something that actually uh university governing bodies have been thinking about for six seven odd years now and yet you know the, the sort of discourse and discussion that's coming out of government doesn't seem to be paying attention to that so I didn't know if anyone had any thoughts on that. So, ha- happy to to come in there. I, so I do think that in terms of the the kind of the, the academic um, quality, the attainment, th- this information I do think is being presented at at the governing body level. Um, mm-hmm. And to before I come and answer your question, Sunday, I'm going to uh, answer Mark's one, which is. Um, if you put the governing body as the kind of the the one that's responsible over you know for, for overall responsible for the strategic direction of the institution and then the investment that's allowed to go within that, you, 
you tend to want to know whether your investment's paid off or not in terms of the evaluation piece afterwards. So for example, if you've done a big major refurbishment of building or set up a new building, accommodation blocks, all the way through to digital infrastructure, uh, as well as the physical infrastructure, um, some of those will kind of in in terms of the approval levels will be responsible for the executive side of the business. Some of them will be kind of at the council level as the final sign-off. But you need to have that assurance that things are working as, as they were set out to be. And if not, you have a, a, the reasons why they, they aren't working. Mm-hmm. Um, coming then back to Sunday's question with regards to um, the, the autonomy of the institution, um, I, I, I'm worried when you hear a lot of this rhetoric um, because I've seen good governance um, throughout my career. Yes, we've got examples of, 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 of uh, poor governance practices, but that's where the regulators stepped in uh, and reviewed and, and we've been able to have action plans that, that, that resolve this quite quickly. Where there is kind of um, a failing institution um, that has significant cause for concern, I, 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 there's probably a handful if if that i mean yes there was a bit of news recently which i won't name um but uh, but uh, we've just got to be careful here because i think sometimes there's a knee-jerk reaction to to a problem that actually doesn't exist in my opinion um from from what i've seen and from what i speak to colleagues in the sector so i would be worried if there's the kind of the the question of institutional autonomy is kind of dangled over as you're lucky mm. to have this we're going to take it away from you um mm. because i don't see that there's a problem if, if i'm really honest so that's about it for this week, this season and this year. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today or throughout the season. You'll find links in the show notes on Mocky.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Mocky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Ash, Jenny and Sunday and everyone at Team Mocky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until September, stay safe, stay cool. Stable. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.